This is a tape recording made by Lieutenant Whitaker of the flight which Eddie Rickenbacker was on, and they were lost at sea for 21 days. It was made in Minneapolis and is being re-recorded today, August 7th, 
that a crew be required to fly an ocean in a plane they had never seen or test flown. But in that case, we were required to do just that. Of course, we objected to taking a plane under those conditions. But when Captain Rickenbacker came to the field, he was accompanied by three generals. And so we were slightly outranked. Well, I was a second lieutenant then. Hey, is that bad? Well, I don't, don't answer that. No, I asked up at Frederick last night, and the G.I. got up and told me. Now I know. And that wasn't good either. For the engineering officer, Tickenfield, was only a major. We put up a good argument with him. And we told him we wanted to wait till morning and test fly the plane and look it over. And he assured us it had been test-blown, checked, and equipped. We had nothing to worry about. And he was a patient, so he listened to us for quite a while. But finally, he got a little upset, and he said, Now look, fellas, I just worked here. Of course, he says, if you're afraid to fly the airplane, say so. And we got a crew to this. And we said, no, we're not afraid. And I've wished ever since that we told him the truth. And we were afraid. And he reminded us that our orders were to shift our gear and get that plane in the air immediately so we had no alternative. Well, the only thing we had time to do was to check our fuel and oil Shift our passengers and baggage, fire up our engines, and get going. For 15 hours and 10 minutes after our takeoff, we came in for our landing. And we missed Canton Island, our first gas stop, completely through the failure and error of instruments. Now, ordinarily in an ocean flight, we work up to within about an hour and a half of a destination with our navigators. Then as a double check, we turn on our radio compass. Well, a needle of that compass would take a plane over a station broadcasting within 20 feet, plus or minus. They're very accurate. But when we turned ours on that morning, we found it jammed. Now, we couldn't move a dial in any direction, and we worked on that set for about three hours. We never got it to work. Then our magnetic compass, and that was the error part. And, of course, all magnetic compasses do have an error. They are accompanied by a correction card that lists the various errors in a different direction. Well, our card told us that we had an error of four degrees. Now, our navigator had to have that information before he could plan a flight or give a pilot a direction to fly. And our navigator used that card, which was proper, was there for that purpose. But it was also our mistake. Of course, I only found that out about three years ago. I was talking one night back in New York State at a national dinner club. I got up to the speaker's table that evening, and next to my place there was a captain. He was a navigator in uniform on recruiting duty. And the minute I sat down, this fellow turned to me, and he said, Say, do you remember that plane you fellas went down in? Well, I said, slightly. Well, he said, did you know when you took that plane that your compass was out 18 degrees? Did they tell you? Well, I said, no, the correction card said four. Oh, he says, that was an old card. And he said their crew had that plane on patrol two days before we left with it. They got lost out of Honolulu on that patrol. They got back purely by accident. He told me that he had swung that compass twice. 
and it was out 18 degrees. So actually, we left Honolulu with 14 degrees of error of which we knew nothing. And that meant that we could not have come within 350 miles of that island at any time. We were lost the minute our wheels came off the runway. And this fellow turned to me again. He said, by the way, did you ever get that radio compass to work? I said, no, we didn't. Well, he says, we didn't either. Well, I knew he had the right airplane anyway. But he told me their crew had grounded that plane. They put it on a Red Cross for a complete instrument overhaul. Now, that Red Cross meant that that plane was not to be flown until the engineering officer signed off that the work had been completed. But for some reason, that plane had never been touched when we were ordered into it. And we were never even given the courtesy of an explanation of why we had to take that plane. But there were no doubts in our minds but what we had it next morning when we met Captain. Then we ran about 30 minutes past their estimated time for arrival. And before we had a radio operator break radio silence, he picked up the island code on another set. Of course, we could hear them on that set, but we couldn't locate them. The set was non-directional. But we asked them for lost plane procedures. Ordinarily, that procedure will locate and bring in a plane very quickly. But this time, Canton Island told us they didn't have the necessary equipment to give us the information we required. And it was a little bit early in the war then for everything to be in the Pacific that should have been. And that stuff got there about two weeks after we went down. Of course, we heard of it later, but it didn't do us much good at the time. But over the next five and a half hours, we exhausted every possibility of the island helping us, or we helping ourselves. And about an hour before we knew that we had to go down through lack of fuel, I had been back through the plane, checking emergency equipment, getting it ready to go over and detailing men to their places when we crashed and abandoned. First, I looked for a large box that holds emergency rations for 11 men. And those rations are good for about uh, two weeks if you stretch them a little. But the box was missing from my plane. We didn't have to stretch them. And I wonder in those days that heavy bombardment was carried in four or five-gallon tents. Well, those tents were also missing. We had no water aboard. We had no emergency ration of any description. The plane had been stripped clean before we ever saw it. Now, the only thing we had was what was left of the lunch that we take from Honolulu. Of course, that was only the last that threw the night twice. And of that, we only had three sandwiches left. And they were some of those delicious spam sandwiches you've heard of. Well, they're, they're really not so bad if you haven't had anything else to eat for about three weeks. We had a few apples and oranges, possibly a quart of water and a cup of cold coffee. I detailed one of the men to get that when we abandoned ship. I went back to the cockpit and secured myself with Captain Terry. As Terry was our commanding officer and pilot, I was his co-pilot. We put Air Force cushions over our stomachs, fastened a safety belt over that, and then we moved the seats back as far as they'd go. And at 5,000 feet, we killed two engines, started down the other two with about 10 minutes gas. We got down to about two feet off of the water. 
And Bill had the plane almost stalled. The tail was low. He was feeling for the waters. I pulled the main line switch to kill Dubber Electrical Connection aboard. Cut the two remaining engines. Bill hooked the tail into the water and we went on. And that was the best landing I've ever seen in an airplane. And I've been flying for 24 years. For none of us had ever been through a water landing before. Well, we've never seen one. And that's the kind of a landing, unfortunately, you don't get to practice. Well, not in a land plane. You either make it or you die. And sometimes you do both. But I know if I was ever going into a 10-foot sea with a B-17 again, well, I'd want Bill Terry's judgment and hands in that plane when we landed. But we contacted the water at a speed between 95 and 100 miles an hour. We stopped completely at less than 40 feet. Now, the boil, our wake and back of the fuselage, was no longer, and that's when we got out. And, of course, that built up tremendous pressure. It's hard to describe, but... Well, you might try it in your car someday. Yeah, that'd give you a rough idea. A very rough. But get your car up to 100 miles an hour. If it's a Pontiac, you better go downhill. Well, mine will only do 95. Of course, I just got a little old six. But get up to 100, stop in 40 feet, and then see where you stop. It'll be somewhere about five miles down the furrow. Well, that cushion I had on my stomach, well, it seemed to be trying to push my backbone through the skin of my back. There was a bitter vinegar taste in my mouth. My eyes wound up like a big clock spring. And they just seemed to make a big circle like that. Well, that was the right one. The left one went the other direction. So they did. They got up to the top and seemed to quiver. Then they unwound. By the time they got unwound, I could almost see again. Or as soon as any of us could move, we got to the roof course in our life raft compartment, cleared the two rafts that were there, and we had a small raft back in the bomb bay. Now, the Army laughingly called that thing a two-man raft, and it's big enough for two men if they're about seven years old. But we were older than that. But we got the raft cleared through a top hatch. We abandoned ships. In about 50 seconds was the three rounds of eight men. We got about 100 feet away, tying the rounds together at intervals. I turned to the man I had detailed to get what little we had and asked him if he'd gotten it clear all right. He looked around rather startled. He says, gee, Lieutenant, I forgot. And our main object at that time was to get away from that plane on wires. No, we were all in a big hurry. We all forgot something. I don't think any of us blamed him for forgetting. But I left us sitting there watching a plane go down with four oranges as our total possession. Captain Cherry and Lieutenant DeAnne, with our navigators, had put those in their pockets before we left the plane. And in calling those things oranges, I did so only through courtesy. So they were the most anemic, weak-kneed specimens I've ever seen. We're back in California. And for that reason, I'd like to say those things might have been Florida oranges. No, they had sun kids stamped all over them. That's California brand, so I guess we're stuck with them. Or 
least we were stuck with them out there. We rationed those things one a day for four days. Didn't eat the peeling. We thought the acid would harm us more than it would help us. And when you cut a, well, an orange that small into eight parts, well, each of us got just enough to make us wish we had a slice of orange. I know it didn't do us any good. It was too small. Of course, that was the only thing we had. We didn't argue with it. And after the fourth morning, there's nothing to argue with anyway. It was gone. And I remember the afternoon of that day more clearly for another reason. For we started a gruesome conversation. See, on the third day, Johnny DeAngelis had found four fish hooks in his pocket. Or rather, they were in his bill hole. Of course, had they been loose in his pocket, he would have found them be the third day. And we had line on the raft. We could see fish in the water, and we tried to snag them. You know, did Jack a bear hook up by them? Well, that's as close as we can of them. We tried baiting a hook with orange peel. Well, they didn't seem to like that any better than we did. They wouldn't bite it. And we tried catching them by hand. Now, Rick had a hold of two. He couldn't hold on. Once, the one about that long started by our raft. He was close in, about two inches underwater, and just moving along in no hurry at all until I leaned over and grabbed him. And I got both hands just in front of his tail. Well, he got in a hurry then. And I started to pull him in over the side of the raft. Well, I got his tail about a foot and a half out of the water. I was just about ready to lean over and take a good bite out of him. And the tighter I squeezed, the slicker he got. Finally, he just squished out and was gone. And so I licked my hands and called it a day. Well, the other fellas wanted to lick too, but they were my hands. It wasn't any meat on them, but it sure did taste good. But we hadn't caught any fish. So that fourth afternoon, we started talking about who we were going to cut on first to use for bait. Yeah, it seems a little strange back here now that we weren't kidding. Because we knew we could catch fish if we had bait and we were going to have something. Of course, only two knives in our party. Well, one of them happened to be in our route. Yeah, I happened to have it. And I know in the next ten minutes someone would have lost an ear. Well, there were two nice ones sitting just in front of me. And they want Bill Terry. But that bird came and landed on Rick's head. Yeah, just like that. <laughs> and I've been asked a number of times if that really happened. It did. Of course, it didn't happen exactly as it was shown in Life magazine. Perhaps some of you recall that artist guess of the raft with Rick in it and the bird on his head. It was a nice picture. So I always wanted to meet the artist that drew that. For that fellow has the most vivid imagination. Why, had we caught that big turkey that he drew sitting on Rick, we would have eaten for a month. Yeah, I wasn't wish he had to eat what we actually caught. It was a little, scrawny, beaten-up old sea swallow. I was less than half the size of a seagull. He circled around twice. He was just about the tiredest bird I've ever seen. He came floating in and landed on Rick's head as though it were a fence post, uh, figuratively speaking. We held our breath and Rick started up after him. 
very carefully. He didn't want that bird to think he had designs on him. They sneaked up and scratched his chest, his cheek, and his ear. He was about the itchiest fellow I've ever seen. He got up under his hat for him, and he was afraid to go farther, so we sat down, and Rick made a grab. He caught him with one leg, pulled him down the raft, and he hattered him and disrobed him, or, or took his feathers off, and we cut him up for bait. Now, I have read in two places other than my own writing that we ate that bird, but if that was the same trip I was on, we didn't. So there was nothing on it to eat. He was just bone and muscle. I tried to eat one leg and got exactly nowhere. But using that bird for bait, we caught two fish about eight inches long. And that included the tail. With that, we caught the second fish, the shark, and taken all of our hooks. I want a shark get a hook. We had the animal lion. He had the hook. We could only do that four times. But there are four sharks in the Pacific that I hope have indigestion to the fourth and fifth generation. So we cut those two lonesome little fish up. We had about a square inch of food each. Now that isn't a great deal as food goes, especially raw fish, but it was something. And we had reached a place where we needed something very badly. For our morale was gone what little we started with. And I never knew before that that could be too important. Well, at least I didn't think a person might die from lack of morale, but I changed my mind. But I think some of us would have died the evening of the sixth day beyond a doubt if we'd had Ripley's column with us I read in California later. But that little thing would have made a difference then to some of us. For in that column... Mr. Ripley said that no man had ever lived over six days without water. And I suppose it was only through our own ignorance that we lived eight days. We didn't know any better. Well, I wrote to Ripley and apologized for us doing that to him. Well, he didn't answer. And we caught our first drop of water of any kind the evening of the eighth day when it rained on us. Of course, we want to eat quite it does get a little warm down there. We've been encrusted with salt. That doesn't help thirst much. And when that rain hit us, we knew nothing whatever about catching it or saving it. Of course, the second rain, we cut the seats out of the raft to use as rain catchers. The first, we just held clothing out in our arms so it became saturated. We had to wring the salt out of that twice. Then we drain the water into our mouth and blow it into a tube of our May West life preserver to save it. We didn't at that time drink any of the water caught in the clothing. So what we drank then, we licked from our skins as it rained on us, and we got about a small glass of water each that way. Of course, I don't think that got to our stomach. Now, we were dehydrated to such an extent it was absorbed before it got there. And we only saved enough to last us two days. It rained hard, but not very long. And I say last us, we had one inch in the bottom of a flare shell twice a day. Of course, that wasn't quite enough to founder on, but it did help to carry us over. But the evening of the tenth day saw our last ration. And then we had a little water left. It was about a mouthful. It wasn't enough to go around our crew again. So we elected to save that back for our first engineer. 
He was a 19-year-old sergeant from Pennsylvania by the name of Alex Kazmarczak. And he was a Polish boy that had been a member of a B-25 combat crew. But his plane came up in the South Pacific for an overhaul. It had gone back to New Guinea. And they left Alec in Honolulu with Jello Johnson. Yeah, he'd been in the hospital 48 days. He'd only been out of bed 17. It hadn't been enough to build his strength back to where it had to be for what we were looking at. So he started to get sick the fourth or fifth day. And every day after that, he got worse. What we tried to do, we could for him, but there isn't much you can do in a rock. By the evening of the tent, he was getting pretty bad. And we thought by giving him that little extra water, he'd be better next morning. But the next morning, he was much worse. Now, he started getting delirious the first part of that day. And he stayed that way most of the time for the next two days until he died. And during the time, Alec was delirious. Well, it seemed to me that most of his time was spent in begging us for water. And in praying to us for water, he prayed to us as though we were God. He cried to us. And he died not understanding why we wouldn't give him anything. See, he knew we had plenty in the other raft. So we pulled a raft together and tried to show him, but you couldn't show him. No, you couldn't convince him. He knew we had it. Then he thought we were mad at him. See, he told us that he was a good boy... And wouldn't harm us to please give him something. Well, he was a good kid. He was much the youngest of any of our party. And to have to sit there and listen to him beg for something his life depended on for two days. And thinking we had it not be able to do a thing on earth for him. Well, it made the two worst days that I've ever spent in my life. It was about 2.30 in the morning of the 13th day. Johnny Bartek, our second engineer called to us in the small raft that Alec had died. And we pulled a raft together to see that he had left it. Then we told Bartek to see if he didn't fall out of the raft till daylight, and we buried him. With daylight, we came together and had service. Or I don't suppose you'd even call it service back here, but we did the best we could with what we had to do with. We said the Lord's Prayer. And perhaps that wasn't too appropriate, but most of the fellas seemed to know it. So I heard one man say he'd forgotten it. And I wish very much, and more for Alex's sake than my own, that I could have said that too. But I didn't know it in the first place, I couldn't have forgotten it. See, I was almost 41 then, but I had never been inside a church or a Sunday school in my life, for any reason whatever. No, I've never run into anything much bigger than I was. Well, I thought religion was for children or people too weak to help themselves. No, I was too big. I didn't need any. So I stumbled along and back at the others till we finished. Then we put him in the water and watched him float away. Of course, we knew he didn't float very long. But we had sharks with us from the time we hit the water until we got out. They ran from a foot and a half to around 12 foot in length. But there was no time, night or day, but what we could see four or five of them. Either their fins cutting through the water away from the raft, or they used to swim right alongside. But they'd been so close, I reached out and patted them with my hand as they went by. Of course, the 
small ones I used to tap with the end of an oar. Well, the big ones I was afraid to. Now, I wouldn't want to get one of those things mad at me anywhere that they're mean. And they used to have a bad habit of rolling underneath the rock. Now, the bottom of those rocks, well, they're very pliable. You sit in the bottom, it's much the same as sitting in a hammock. Yeah, would leave quite a depression underneath. Well, Sharks used to roll... Well, some people call them free-wheeling crockery. 
call them a lot of things. But when you lose weight, they don't sit anymore. Now, they not only don't sit, they fall out. I used to wear mine in my shirt pocket. Now, when I'd catch one of those things, I'd get him one hand, the bottom of the raft, and sit on it so he couldn't jump overboard. With the other hand, I'd get the clippers out, put them in. Then I'd throw the thing in with the clippers, and they'd chase him around till they got a good fight on him. So as soon as they caught up with him, I got a good hole, and I lowered the boom. Now, that first fight, you're going to find just a little bit squishy. Of course, after that, he alive still, you can chew him up good. But those three little minnows, with one exception, completed our entire menu for 21 days. And perhaps that made a difference in the way we looked at those things. I think it made the same difference to any of you. So I haven't mentioned very much food, but that was it. And with that exception, you could put what each of us had in a teacup. It wouldn't have been much over half full, so we didn't have too much to eat for three weeks. Now, that exception took the form of two other fish about seven to eight inches long. And I made an exception of it because it happened one evening in a way. Well, to me at the time, it could have been a great deal of coincidence. It may appear so to some of you. It didn't to me very long. But it happened that evening after I heard Bill Cherry offer a prayer. Now, I have heard many prayers in the Pacific, especially that early in the war, when it looked to a lot of those out there as though we might lose. Now, I've heard big men pray and those who thought they were big. I've heard little men in airplanes, on ships, islands, and hospitals, and, of course, on the raft. But on the raft, there was a little difference. From there, I don't recall ever hearing a V or a vowel. Now, those men talk to God as they would to some friend or neighbor, not to anyone to be afraid of. They spoke in their own manner after what was in their own heart. Now, Bill Cherry is a Texan. He was 27 years old at that time, exactly my size. But Bill had gone through Hart and Simmons University at Abilene on a football scholarship. So Hart and Simmons had a good football team then. Any man that stayed on it four years on a scholarship, you could figure was a very tough lad. And Bill is. He's also one of the finest soldiers and men that I've ever known. Of course, I don't know how much Bill had prayed in his life. I don't imagine too much. But I do know the first prayer of my life went from that rock. And it went then only because I was getting afraid. Now, it's just too bad in a country such as ours that a person could get as old as I was, get in the position I was in, and have to meet the master as a stranger through fear. But I was always a wise guy. He always knew everything. I always had to do things the hard way. And of course, I was no exception. But in Bill's prayer that evening, he said, Old master, we're getting awful thirsty and hungry, and we haven't been able to catch anything for ourselves. I guess we'll leave it up to you whether you're going to help us out of this mess or not. But if you could get us anything at all, this afternoon or tomorrow until later, we sure would appreciate it. Amen. Well, that doesn't sound much like a prayer, as I've heard them back here. In less than ten minutes, those two fish jumped into our rock. Now, we didn't catch them. They jumped in. 
And that might have been a coincidence, surely, until you consider the size of those drops. The inner dimensions of a large drop were about the same as the outer rim of your bathtub. Now put them down in the middle of the immensity of the Pacific Ocean. At the exact spot, the exact instant, the barracuda were chasing a school of small fish. So they jumped out of the water to get away from the barracuda and two of them fall in those drops. So I think you'd have the makings of a very far-fetched coincidence. I know that I had heard a prayer given from a man's heart. And I had seen that prayer answered physically and immediately. And it was my privilege to have seen that four times in the Pacific. The immediate physical answer to prayer. And each time it was under conditions and left no room for doubt as to whether there was something bigger than I was. And if anyone ever needed proof, well, I think I was that person and I got it. Of course, there'd be no time here to go through all the happenings or the 21 days that we sat around those drops. If I did, it would probably bore you as much as it did us. That's all we had to do was sit and wait and hope. Uh, we saw nothing with a possibility picking us up. We've been at sea for over 18 days. And that could be a stretch of calendar under some conditions. But late in the afternoon of that day, we were, well, just lounging around the raft. We didn't have anything else to do anyway. Jerry had his head down in one of the air chambers. I was on the other side of the raft. Jim Reynolds, our radio operator, was on the other end. It was our heads where our bodies were. Well, three of you get in the bathtub, you see about what I mean. The bill picked his head up very suddenly. He shook the raft. I thought a shark bit him. I looked around. He had a wild look in his eyes. He says, I hear an airplane engine. And I said, again? See, we'd all heard airplane engines. We all heard too many things. We had all talked to people who weren't there. We had seen people that weren't there. So I looked over at Reynolds. I said, here we go again. Bill's in. Get him from that side. But less than ten seconds after Bill heard the engine that time, we all heard it. We picked that plane up to the west, twelve, fifteen miles away. They just suspect they headed right for it. Of course, we knew then that our worry had been for nothing. This man had it. All we had to do was figure what to drink when he got to it. I heard many items mentioned in the next few seconds. Well, the seconds took that plane to get about five or six miles away. When he got there, he changed course to the north. He missed us by about three miles, and he didn't see us. Of course, that was a little bit disappointing. Oh, we waved at him. We said, you yeah, that's about all we had left. And of course, he hadn't seen it. He couldn't hear it. At that night, none of us even made a pretense of sleeping. Now, we just... Uh, uh, sat around the raft. Nobody wanted to go out much anyway. The following morning, we picked that plane up coming to east. There we thought he had a dead center until he got about the same distance away as the other plane. And he also changed course. He missed us by about the same margin and he just said. That afternoon, that same plane came back from the west. We found later it was the same one. One of our own Navy scout observations. That plane came within about a mile and a half of us. We could make out the men in the cockpit. 
And they looked very well fed and well watered. And again, they didn't see it. But we didn't know why. I talked to the pilot of that plane later. Navy Lieutenant Fred Woodard from Dubuque, Iowa. He says, Whip, uh, some of the fellows call me Whip, some just half Whip. But he, you know, he says, if you fellows been farther away from us, we've probably seen you. Now that's a fine way to be missed, being too close. Of course, we didn't know that plane was on an offensive patrol, looking for a Jap task force supposedly heading south. We didn't know they were watching the horizon and the air more than they were the immediate surface. We didn't know they'd given up the search for us on the 13th day. Now, we only knew that we could see that plane so clearly and he hadn't seen us. But I heard men deny God then. Or if they admitted God, they wanted no part of him. Now, if he could let three planes go by, one so close and not see it, they weren't going to play. And it made a very bad night for all of us. Of course, I knew nights could be long. I spent a lot of them. I suppose most of you have too. But I didn't know one night could be an eternity, but I think we all found it out that night. We had two of our men bail out on us about 2.30 that morning. They went over the side, let the chart finish it off fast. Because they felt that they had taken enough and they didn't propose to sit there and take any more. And we couldn't blame them. See, everyone there had taken four times what they thought they could take. And it was only those men's misfortune to have broken ahead of the rest of it. But we all knew we had our turn coming. We weren't kidding ourselves anymore. But even though we couldn't blame them, it took most of the strength we had left to get them back in the raft and change their minds for them. But that night had to wear itself out eventually. At daylight, we took a boat to split up. And I was in hopes one of the rafts would be seen before we drifted through that patrol into open sea again. The boat one had found Johnny DeAngelis alone in the small raft. But Johnny didn't want to go alone. And I don't think Bill Cherry did either. But Bill was in command. He was in much better shape than Johnny. So he told him as an order to get over at me and he would take that raft. But by the middle of the afternoon, we drifted out of sight of the others. That night, well, it wasn't very short either. But at daylight on our 21st day, the first thing we saw to the west was a row of palm trees about 10 miles long. They seemed to be about that far away, 10, 12 miles. Now, the other rafts never sighted that island at all. At first, we thought it was a mirage, but it stayed there. So we finally got out the aluminum oars who were packed in the bottom of the raft and started rowing. Uh, thinking we would get in in a couple of hours. And I don't know yet what we based that on, for none of us were in what you'd call top condition. I had expected Jim Reynolds to be dead that morning. I thought we were going to have to bury him. He couldn't set up alone the evening before. His eyes were an inch back in his head. His face looked like a skull. His mind had started to wonder. And popped in the front of the raft that morning. He could barely raise his arm. But somehow, he did that all morning, pouring water down the back of my neck to keep me from blacking out. And what he did it on, I'll never know. Now, the answer fell me twice for ten-minute intervals on the oars during that morning. And those intervals meant whether we kept going or not. 
See, we were going west, and north wind was drifting us down across the face of the island. Had we stopped rowing for any reason, we'd been drifted around the end, unable to get back, so we had to keep going. And what those two men did, they gave everything they had. No one could do more. But they left the space weighing 130 pounds each, their normal weight. They finished out there with less than 85. First, I started 186, I went to 133. And losing 53 pounds, I was top loser. But I finished weighing more than they started with. So naturally, most of the work of the trip was up to me. And we were only grateful any one of us had enough weight to do something with the oars. It didn't matter who. But we didn't get in in a couple of hours. At the end of about five and a half hours, we had been closed twice, but we still weren't on. And the first part of that morning was very hot. Well, they all are out there, and every day seems to get worse. But still, there was no perspiration. So I put my finger in my mouth and got powder on it. Yeah, there wasn't moisture in my body to moisten my mouth. We're not forced to breathe through it partially, that contributed. But we got about a fourth of the way in, a few small clouds started forming, floating down from the north. They kept increasing about three-fourths of the way. It was almost solid overcast. The wind got a little gusty along through there, but we made pretty good headway and it was cooler until we got up within about a quarter of a mile of the outer reef of Nuka Patel Island. When we got there, we were hit by a wind squall. To pick the raft up and whirl it back to sea, I'd say well over two miles. Yet we all wanted to quit then, so we didn't want to keep going. But it seems as long as you can breathe or think, you keep trying. But as we came back toward the island, the wind got stronger and gustier. It seemed to shift a little from the west, which put it slightly against us. But we inched our way back to within about 200 yards of that reef. We thought we'd be on in a few minutes if we lasted that long. And about 200 yards offshore, a wind shift came straight out of the west directly across the island. Hit the raft as a strong gust that almost turned us over. It stood us on edge and it took us right back to sea over a mile and a half again before it turned loose. And that time we all knew we were not going to make it. Now we hit the bottom of the barrel. There was nothing left. And no reason for any of us to try to go on. Now the answers and rentals were in the bottom of the raft then. I know that neither of those men had even the will, let alone the strength to have opened his eyes. I know I didn't. I had fallen forward across the oars, knowing that I wouldn't get up again. So I got up for the last time I knew it. I was done through and finished. I didn't have a thing on earth left except a prayer. And perhaps I wasn't too familiar with that. Or maybe even then I didn't have too much faith in it. But that was all I had. Then I just told the master the condition we were in. I told him we'd given everything that we had and it wasn't enough. That Jimmy was going to die. That we all would if he didn't see that to help us. And I asked his help. I came up off of those oars and beached the raft on the island about two hours later against the headwind, knowing that I held those oars in my hands, but also knowing that there's no strength of mine went through my body at any time in pulling those oars.
I could feel a shaft bending in my hand. Well, there wasn't physical strike that entire raft to a bent up pin. We had been out too long. We didn't have it. The raft searched the heaven of waters. The previous hours didn't move very slowly. And I didn't profess then, or do I here today, to be able to tell you exactly where that power came from, or precisely what it was. But I do know it was a whole lot bigger than I am, or bigger than all of it. And to me personally, it was God's answer to another prayer. And what I learned out there, I learned so well. Of course, I'm not a student of theology, I'm not a minister. Well, I could be very much better in every way than I am. But I did add two words to my usable vocabulary when we finished that riot. And if that's all I ever did, well, those two words alone would be worth a thousand times anything that trip could ever cost me. And those words are, I believe. Now, they're small words, but I couldn't use them before that trip. Well, had I told one person I believed in God, to me, I would have been a sissy. For since that trip, I've told this story many times. And each time, I've been only too grateful and too glad that I could use those two words and far beyond for what they have meant to me since we came back from that trip. Well, we were on that island two days before the natives found us. They took us to their village, which is on another island about 12 miles farther west. Of course, we'd seen the island. We didn't know it was inhabited. When we got there, we found that Captain Rickenbacker's raft with Colonel Adamson, his aide, and Bartek, and Captain Cherry's raft had been picked up at sea the evening before by plane and motor torpedo boats about 30 minutes before a storm struck that area. And none of those men would have ridden out another storm. The following day, the USS Hilo came in and picked us up. We rejoined the others on the island of Funafuti, and that is the southernmost island of the Gilbert Ellis group. From there, the Navy flew us to Tutuila, Samoa. We're hospitalized with a third mobile naval hospital unit for 18 days. Then Captain Rickenbacker went on on a stretcher to Guadalcanal and New Guinea to complete his mission for Secretary of War Simpson. And had that been my mission, it would not have been completed. Of course, I'm not rich. I have never seen any tree mess with the courage that I saw in that man out there. And I think in two wars, I've seen a few men of courage. And with everything I've heard to the contrary, with all of his toughness and all of his hardness, I have never seen a man as conscious of God as that same Eddie Rickenbacker. Of course, the rest of us were sent back to the States then for a 30-day leave, sent back to active duty.
Thank you. 